Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> this is God's word. It is holy. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is powerful to change your life. Please give it your full attention. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus once told a parable about two brothers. And those two brothers represented two ways to be spiritually lost. The younger brother asked for his inheritance early and then left home, went out into the world and spent his money and spent himself pursuing the ways of this world and the lusts of the flesh. The older brother stayed home, and outwardly he conformed to the will of his father. He was an obedient son. But what the story reveals is that in his heart, he was full of pride and judgmental spirit. He saw external obedience to the will of his father to be a way to get what he wanted, he obeyed out of self-interest. He ob obeyed to get the honor and the fatted calf that he wanted. He saw obedience as the means to have his will done. Tim Keller in his classic book, The Prodigal God, has this quote. He says, neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the Father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. 
Even though I was the youngest in my family, my testimony, when I share it with people, sounds a lot more like that of the older brother than the younger brother. Before I became a Christian as a teenager in high school, I came from a respected family in my community. I went to church every Sunday. I didn't get in trouble. I got good grades in school. I didn't get drunk. I didn't do drugs. I wasn't, didn't lead a sexually immoral lifestyle. As testimonies go, that's pretty boring. We're used to hearing testimonies about dramatic change from a life of wanton lust and lostness to a life of following Christ. But I need to be continually, constantly reminded that even in that state of being a good kid, I was hopelessly, badly lost. To be lost is to be far from God. To be lost is living in spiritual ignorance and spiritual darkness. To be lost is to be a slave to the sins that rule over you. Somebody with a testimony that sounds a lot like mine once said that God did a much greater work of grace in his life as a quote-unquote good person to save him than the work of grace that he does in the lives of people that the world would consider very broken, the criminals, the addicts, the sexually immoral people, those that are obviously living out their sinful lives. He said, God did a much greater work of grace in my life because the sin that he had to deliver me from was much deeper and much darker than those sins, the sin of spiritual pride. Ephesians 1 that we've looked at already in our first couple of sermons in this series gives an exhilarating overview of this entire scope of God's marvelous grace, how God saved us. He chose us before the beginning of the world. God the Father chose his people. He sent his son to redeem his people by shedding his blood. And the Father and the Son sent the Spirit to seal us for salvation, to instill within us a desire to know and serve God. And chapter 1 ends with a view of the ascended Christ reigning over all things for the sake of the church. And it speaks of our inheritance. We have an inheritance because of what Christ has done for us. That's chapter 1. It's the big picture of salvation. And so this is what Paul expands upon in chapter 2. But in chapter 2, he takes this massive, great, glorious story of how God saves his church through his son and his spirit and he applies it to you as an individual Christian. This is how you entered into this grand story. This is how you received this life-changing grace. How you have shared in what Christ won for us at the cross. The theology, the deep theology of chapter 1 becomes very personal and very intimate in chapter 2 at the beginning. Now, each Christian I know has a very unique spiritual journey from where you were to where you are now. If we were to have time to go around and have you all share your testimonies, your spiritual journey, it would be as varied and, and wonderfully diverse as the people who are here because of the different 
backgrounds you came from, the different experiences you had, the different personalities you had, the different sin issues you struggled with. Your stories would all be very different. But in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, this is the testimony we all share. No matter how good we were in the eyes of the world or how evil we were in the eyes of the world, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 is your testimony if you're a Christian this morning. Your testimony has to answer three questions. If you're sharing your testimony with somebody, you want to add your own personal color and details from your personal life, but it has to answer these three questions, the one that Paul answers here in these first ten verses. First of all, from what were we saved? From what were we saved? Verse 1, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Wow. Devastating diagnosis of where we were before Christ came into our lives. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Paul's describing the dark, wretched spiritual condition that we were all born into. According to scripture, spiritual death is separation from God, alienation from God, a nature that is running away from God, that rebels against God, that is hostile to God. Now, it may not look like that on the, on the surface, may not look like that to other people, but that's the nature we are born with. And in our natural state, that's where we are, spiritually dead to God. That doesn't mean that we are or were as evil as we possibly could be. We may have been good people in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the people who knew us, even in the eyes of the people who loved us. But it means that in our hearts, it was all about us. We lived for our own glory. We lived for our own will. We lived for the ways of this world. And we were hostile to the God who created us. Everything we did was for self-interest, not to glorify God. Even the good things that we did. Even the great accomplishments of our life. Do you notice that Paul begins by saying, you were dead in trespasses and sins. He's talking to the people he's writing to. These were Christians in the churches in and around Ephesus. They were Gentiles. They were not raised in the ways of the Old Testament, the law of God, the teachings of God's work of redemption in the Old Testament. They had not received that. They were Gentiles. They were new to all of this. And so he says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. But if you notice, he switches the pronoun in, in verse 3. He says, we all once lived in this way. And he's speaking as a representative of the Jews. Yes, you Gentiles were dead in your trespasses and sins, but we all, even we Jews, were born into this world dead in trespasses and sins. Just think about Paul himself. Before he met, literally met, the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, we know what he thought of himself at that point. He was a great religious leader. He was a teacher of Israel. He was a, uh, a leader among the Jewish people. He was, in his own estimation, as you read it in Philippians 3, as he described himself, as he saw himself before Christ encountered him, he described himself as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's how he saw himself. God was so lucky to have him serving him. But after his conversion, after he was first blinded and then both his physical eyes and his spiritual eyes were open to see who he truly was in the eyes of God, 
He called himself the chief of sinners, the foremost of sinners. In verses 2 and 3, Paul describes what the state of spiritual death is like, what it was like for all of us at one time. Maybe somebody here this morning is still like this for you. But we all started out in this condition. And Paul describes the state of spiritual death in terms of three powerful forces that enslaved us. The world, the devil, and the flesh. I know that's not the order we usually do it. We usually say the world, the flesh, and the devil, but Paul does it in the order I just said. The world, the devil, and the flesh. First of all, he says in verse 2, we were following the course of this world. And the world he's talking about there is not the created world, not the world as in terms of all the population of the world. He's talking about the world that is in opposition to God, the fallen world, the world that operates in spiritual darkness and death. The society, the godless society that covers the earth. It's that peer pressure that pushes you away from God. The peer pressure that pushes you towards self-exaltation, pride, and desiring the lust of the flesh. The societal pressure to conform to the ways of this fallen world. You know, it's easy for, easier for us to see it. I've lived long enough that I've seen the world come out of the closet, so to speak. I've seen the world show its true colors in our own culture. I remember back when I was a kid, small child, uh, it was the day of the hippies. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, do ever what feels good. That was considered anti-establishment back in the 60s. Today it is the values, that, it, that are, those are the values of the establishment. All of the so people that were seen before as rebellious are now seen as conforming to the morals, the values, the philosophies of this fallen world. But it's not that the world has become more evil. Sometimes we talk like it has. Just, the world's become so evil these days. It's not the world's become more evil. It's just been more honest about who it is. Not hiding it anymore. It's become very accepted to live for what you feel instead of live for God. And so that was, we were enslaved to that. We were swimming downstream, not upstream. We were going with the flow of this fallen world in our original state, in that state of spiritual death. The second force that Paul describes is Satan. He says in verse 2, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I know it sounds primitive, but we believe in a personal force of evil that's at work in this world. The power and influence that was driving us away from God when we were spiritually dead, was not only human, it was also supernatural. It was spiritual, and it was a person. The one that the scriptures call the devil, Satan, and the demons that serve him. Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. Certainly God is sovereign, but under his sovereignty, Satan is the one who rules over this fallen world, and everyone who is still dead in their sins, ultimately serves Satan, whether they acknowledge it or realize it or not. He's the ruler of this world. In Revelation 12, there's this glorious vision, again, talking about the big scope of God's saving work, 
and it focuses on Christ being sent to die for our sins and being raised and ascended to the right hand of the Father. But at the end of that vision, it talks about what Satan's doing as a result of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father. It says, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has gone, come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4, it calls the devil the god of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. That's spiritual death, and that's where we were. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is real. He is active. He is leading unbelievers astray. He's blinding their minds. He's leading them away from God. And he certainly is attacking the church. Thirdly, the third force that we were enslaved to and we were spiritually dead is the passions of the flesh. He says we were living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You see, we were not only slaves to forces that are outside of us, the world and the devil, but we were enslaved to our own desires. We were slaves to sin. At the root of everything we did, even the good things that we did, was a sinful, prideful, self-centered, self-interest motivation. We were slaves to sin. We lived to fulfill the desires of our own hearts, to do our own will. That's spiritual death, as Paul describes it. And what's the final verdict for those who are spiritually dead? Paul says, we were by nature children of wrath. When he says children of wrath, he doesn't mean that we were wrathful children. What he means is we were children under the wrath of God, subject to the wrath of God, where he says in Romans 9, we were objects of God's wrath because God hates sin. God is holy, 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 and he hates sin far more than we can ever possibly imagine. And we were under his wrath because of our sinfulness. Someone said that the first three verses of Ephesians 2 are a condensed version of the first three chapters of the book of Romans. Because it ends up in the same, it's at the end of verse 3, it ends up in the same verdict that we find at the end of Romans 3, or in the middle of Romans 3, where it says this, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so we are under God's wrath. Jesus himself said in John chapter 3, verse 36, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. People that you know and love and work with and study with and have in your family, that's the state they're in. Spiritual death and the wrath of God remains upon them. Pray that they would find Christ and not die in that state of death under God's wrath. Now again, spiritual death was the condition of everyone, Jews and Gentiles, prodigal sons and older brothers, those who are obviously wicked and those who hide their wickedness under a superficial visage of being good or righteous. So what hope could we have in that state? What could God expect from somebody who's dead in his eyes, spiritually dead, a corpse, spiritually? 
obviously nothing we could do. So how were we saved? That's the second question. First question is, from what were you saved? Second question is, how were you saved? And the answer is in verses 4 and 5. But God made us alive. We were dead. We could not be saved except that God resurrected us spiritually. He made us alive. When we tell somebody our testimony, when you talk to somebody about what your spiritual journey has been, and you talk about how you went from not knowing God and not serving God to today following Christ, living for Christ, and the hope of the gospel. When you tell that story, undoubtedly the turning point, the focal point of your story is going to be your conversion. And by conversion, we mean that moment where we understood the gospel, believed in Christ, repented of our sin, and committed our life to following Christ. That'll be the turning point, the focal point of the story. But when God tells your testimony, like he does here in, in Ephesians 2, the turning point was actually significantly before that. The turning point in your life was not when you understood, believed, repented, and followed Christ. That was not the turning point. The turning point is when God made you alive. That had to come first because you were spiritually dead. Dead and incapable of even wanting to know God, let alone choosing to know God and to follow Christ. You had to be made alive. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Later on in that chapter, he'll say, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. But Interestingly, he makes the point first, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. You can't, even want, you can't even see the kingdom of God, let alone want to enter into the kingdom of God, let alone enter the kingdom of God, unless you are first born again, unless God makes you spiritually alive by regenerating your heart. That's our theological term for it, regeneration. It's a miracle of the Holy Spirit. It's a resurrection that the Holy Spirit causes within each one of us which makes faith and repentance happen. In Ezekiel 11, God says, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules. Your salvation began when God gave, took away your cold, dark, dead stone heart and replaced it with a spiritually living heart that wanted to turn from your sins, that wanted to to know God, that wanted forgiveness, that wanted justification, that wanted to follow in the ways of Christ. That's why Paul says in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Now I want to point out, first of all, notice how important this is, that twice in these 10 verses, twice Paul says for emphasis, by grace you have been saved. That's the central point. It is by grace you have been saved and by grace alone. But when it says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. If you've done any studies on this passage, you probably know that scholars debate what is this referring to. This is the gift of God. The two most popular answers to that question is faith is a gift of God, or is 
Paul referring to the whole work of salvation, all the way from election before the foundation of the world to the enjoyment of our inheritance and the new, kings and new, new heavens and earth in the future. Is it the whole work of salvation that is a gift of God, or is it faith in particular that Paul is saying is a gift of God? And the answer is yes. Both and. I think Paul definitely has both in mind because the whole work of salvation is the work of God, including the gift of faith, which he gives through making us alive. He makes us alive so that we can and will put our faith in Jesus Christ and thereby be saved. It is the gift of God. That's what Paul means when he says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Wow, Paul, that sounds heretical. What do you mean, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling? Ah, but read the rest of the verse. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. To both choose, to both decide to walk in the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's God working in you. So, on what basis does God give us this indescribable gift? Two answers he gives here. One is simply, he gives it to us because of his decision to love us. Look at verse 4. Here's the because word. Why, has, you know, on what basis were we saved? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. He didn't love us after we turned from our sin. He didn't love us after we decided to follow Christ. He loved us while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, when we had absolutely nothing to offer to him. But what about God's wrath? The wrath of God remained on us. And unlike where you might hear in some other places, God's love does not cancel his wrath. God's love, by, you know, in and of itself, does not deny God's wrath. It does not cancel out God's wrath. God's wrath has to be satisfied. Sin must be punished. God is holy. And so unlike where you might hear from somewhere else where it'd say, well, God just overlooks, he loves you so much he overlooks your sin. He accepts you as you are. He overlooks your sin completely. He just, he just, because he's a forgiving and loving God, he accepts you. Yes, because he's a forgiving and loving God, he accepts you, but based on the satisfaction of his wrath, not the setting aside of his wrath. And that's what the work of Jesus Christ is about. That's why he says in verses 5 and 6, he made us alive together with Christ. It's the only way to be made alive. If you're spiritually dead and trespasses and sin, there's only one way to be made alive. It's with Jesus Christ. It says, He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul means in Romans 5 when he says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God loved us. Remember, I said a couple weeks ago that the key theological phrase in all of Paul's writings, in all of the Old Testament, the key phrase is that little phrase, in Christ. You can summarize the entire theology of the scriptures in those two words, in Christ. If we trust in Christ, then we die with Christ. His death satisfies the penalty for our sins. We die with him. His death 
is that sacrificial atonement that pays fully the cost of my sins. God's wrath is fully satisfied as God the Father punishes the Son for what we deserve. If we trust in Christ, then Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. We die with Christ and we are raised with Christ. We know that we will be raised spiritually and physically because Christ was raised from the dead. God accepted his sacrifice of atonement on our behalf. If we trust in Christ, then we are, in a sense, already seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Christ is Lord. Christ is King of kings. Christ is on the throne at the right hand of God. And we share in his kingdom. We are part of his kingdom. We receive an inheritance. It's already ours. It cannot be taken away because Christ has achieved what made it possible. Paul expands on this truth in Romans 6 when he says, If we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We were dead in, sin, dead in sins and trespasses. Now we are dead to sin because of what Christ did. There's your self-identity, Christian. That's who you are, dead to sin, alive to Christ. What that means, that it has to transform your life. That's why we pursue holiness. It's because we've been resurrected from spiritual death and we are now alive in Christ. And we want to do the will of God as a gift to us. You know, I often get this question, you know, you guys preach salvation by grace alone. It's not based on anything in us, anything we do, not even, not even some meager faith that we might offer up to God that he might save us, even that is a gift from God. If you teach that, well, what, why even pursue holiness? If Christ died on the cross for all the sins of your past and all the sins that you're committing today and all the sins that you'll commit until the end of your life, if Christ paid in full every one of those sins, why even bother being good? Why bother doing the will of God? Why bother wanting to be like Christ? Don't you have a Blank check now to go live any way you want to live because it's already been paid for. If you can believe that, you do not understand regeneration. You do not understand being born again. You do not understand this new heart of flesh that you've been given as a gift by grace because that new heart that you've been given wants to know God, wants to do the will of God, longs to be like Christ. It's a new desire that he's put within you. And that brings us to the last question that Paul answers. First of all, he's asked the question, from what were you saved? Secondly, uh, how were you saved? Thirdly, for what were you saved? For what purpose were you saved? Why did God do this? Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love that word workmanship. In the original Greek, that word that is translated workmanship in, workmanship in English, it's the word that we get the word poem from. In the Greek, what it means is something created, something made, something created. In other words, we are God's work of art. We are God's masterpiece. That's what he's working in us. Each one of us who have been saved by the blood of Christ, 
He is transforming us into his work of art, into his masterpiece. You know, that's what Adam and Eve were at the beginning. When God created all things, he created the entire universe, everything that exists, when God created it by the power of his word alone, on the sixth day, Adam and Eve were the pinnacle of his creation. They were the masterpiece of the universe. But sin destroyed it. Sin corrupted it. Sin made what was so beautiful ugly. Salvation, then, is the recreation and restoration of God's masterpiece in his people. The recreation and restoration of the full image of God in his people. That's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, when he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is a new work that God is doing in you. And yes, it's a work in progress. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, Paul says. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, one degree of the image of God to another. Yes, I know. I've lived as a Christian long enough to know that many times it's three steps forward and two steps back. Sometimes it feels like two steps forward and five steps back. But as you look at the full course of your life, if your faith is real, if your faith is the result of a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit giving you a new heart, then your life will slowly but surely, by progress, step-by-step progress, you will be transformed into the image of God. And one day it'll be complete when he comes again to make you perfect in body and soul. Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. People who love righteousness. People who don't resent the law of God putting restrictions on their lives, but who love the law of God because that's what it means to be like Christ. It's the picture that we are being transformed into. Back in chapter 1, verse 4, in the midst of that whole scope of salvation, you may not have noticed it, but Paul answered that question, for what purpose is God doing this great work of salvation? It's in verse 4. It says, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Remember what I said earlier. The true religion, the religion revealed by God in his word that is about Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. That true religion is based upon God's faithfulness to us, not our faithfulness to him. And God will do what he has promised from before the foundation of the world. He will make you alive. If you are chosen by him, he will make you alive. He will give you a heart of flesh. He will transform you by degree, one degree to another to become like his son. And one day it will be perfected and you'll enjoy perfect fellowship with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He is faithful. He has promised. He will do it. I was, about a week ago, I was driving back from western Pennsylvania, and I was driving along the interstate, 
And I saw on uh, one of those, uh, uh, whatever you call the things that hold up the bridges, what do you call those? Uh, anyway, uh, underneath the bridge, they, they, they used to see us all the time when I was younger. It used to be really popular along interstates, but I always wondered who was doing it because it always seemed like the same, same uh, handwriting. But they would paint Jesus Saves. And I saw one. First time I saw one of the signs on a bridge uh, coming back on Interstate 80. Jesus saves. I thought, well, that's nice. You know, I understand that it's graffiti, but still, it's, it's, a, it's, an, attempt at, it's an attempt at evangelism. But I thought, what does that mean to our culture? Our culture doesn't know what it needs to be saved from. Well, Ephesians 2 tells us, this is your testimony if you're a Christian this morning. And these are the truths that you build your life upon. From what do you need to be saved? You need to be saved from spiritual death, being enslaved to the flesh, the world, and the devil, to being under God's wrath. You need to be saved, lest you spend eternity in that condition. Secondly, how are you saved? By pure, unadulterated grace. You are saved by a new birth by the Holy Spirit so that you trust in Christ's redeeming work, his bloodshed on the cross. And finally, for what purpose are you saved? To become, by God's grace, his masterpiece of Christ-likeness for all eternity. Is this your testimony this morning? No matter what the particulars might be of how God worked in your life, is that your testimony? If so, rejoice in his grace. If it's not your testimony, if you're sitting there thinking maybe I'm still spiritually dead, maybe the Holy Spirit's beginning to work on you. Maybe that's the reason you realize it. Go to the scriptures. Pray. Go to church. Ask somebody to share about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is hope. As long as you're still breathing, there's hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. It's been so good for us to dig deep into what Ephesians 1 and 2 teach us about your grace. It's so much bigger, so much deeper, so much more profound than we first believed. Lord, keep us digging deeper and deeper into what your grace means, what it is, how it happened, and what it creates, what hope it creates within us. Father, thank you for making us your masterpiece. We look forward to seeing your work finished. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.